Well, this is week number five of the series that we've been in, Love Story. And before we jump into the message, let me take a moment and welcome everybody that's joining us online every week. We have uh, many of you who join us either through YouTube or our website or the podcast. And so I want to just say a special welcome to you tonight. Uh, invite you to pull your message notes out now. You have all of the scripture, the fill in the blanks, especially married people. I want you to grab your message notes, hang on to these. Uh, you should use them for some personal homework later uh, this week. Get together with your spouse and kind of talk through this message again because this is one of the best chapters in the entire Bible on what a godly marriage looks like. And the reason we're going to talk about marriage tonight with a lot of people who aren't married and a lot of people who are is because, one, half of you are married and you need to know what God's standard for a great marriage looks like. And two, those of you that are not married very likely will be married one day. And you need to understand what to look forward to and why this season of your life is so critical. Because you need to know that your past has a nasty way of showing up in your future. And what you're doing right now will show up in your future. And so this, as a single person, is the most important season of your life to protect yourself, to guard yourself, to prepare yourself. It's not the time to live it up and have as much fun and do as much and drink as much and sleep with as much as you can. Because one day, no, 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 this is the time to guard your life so that you can have one of the most beautiful marriages in the future. And I'm going to show you what God's standard for marriages, and it's amazing. I'm just telling you right now, it's absolutely incredible. And so we're, we're going to dig into this. And I do recognize that there are some people who have the gift of singleness. Paul talks about the spiritual gift of being single. Those, th that's very, very rare. Uh, you may have that gift, wonderful, but I'm talking to those of you that either are married, either are going to be married, or you know married people, and you've got to be able to give good advice. The other problem in the church today is we have a lot of people giving marital advice who don't know what they're saying at all, and it doesn't line up biblically. So you need to understand what God's Word says about this area of our life. So let's get back into our foundation text where we set the foundation for the whole series, chapter 1, verse 1, Solomon's Song of Songs. Again, this is a book that was written like a play. It's written like a, a song, an allegory, a poem. There's a lot of symbolism here. There's three different characters throughout the story. There's Solomon, who is the lover. There's the beloved, the Shulamite, his wife. And then there's this chorus of friends that represent the world and chime in throughout the story. This is her speaking now. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. And that's the goal of this series. We want you to live your life in such a way that the people who work with you say you're a delight to be around. Your neighbors say you are a delight to be around. Your children say you are delightful. Your spouse says you are delightful. You, you do relationships so well and friendships so well that people enjoy being around. You, you bring life to the situation. You bring, you, you bring encouragement to the situation. And so that's the goal of this series is to really figure out how to do relationships well. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfume, she says. Your name or reputation is like perfume poured out. In other words, the way you treat people is spreading. You have a reputation for treating people well. And her conclusion is no wonder the young maidens love you. Anybody would want to be uh, a guy like you, a girl like you, a husband, a wife, a parent, a mother, father. Anybody would want to be somebody like you is, is the conclusion. And so that's the goal. So week one, we began with what we call the art of attraction. Uh, how do we approach looking for somebody of the opposite sex who we're going to marry one day? What do we work on to develop our attractiveness to the opposite sex? And for those of us that are married, what do we do to maintain our attractiveness once we get married? And it's critical to understand those points because there's an order to attractiveness and physical is not the most important, contrary to the culture that we live in today. Not at all the most important. In fact, if you get the order right, physical will absolutely be there in your eyes. And that's the power of this whole story because this wasn't the attractive girl in the story. The girl that Solomon, the girl the king chooses is not the girl that would have ever been on the cover of a magazine in this culture. And we find that out from chapter 1. Chapter, chapter 2 and 3, we see their, their courting life. Uh, they show us a model of God's version of courting and approaching marriage that works. The problem with the world that we live in is we have this version of dating that does not work. It's actually a, a version of dating that sets us up for divorce. And the reason divorce is such an epidemic 
in our nation is because we practice this season of dating that does not work. So encourage you to catch up on week two if you missed it. Week number three was chapter four. Uh, it's amazing to me that God put an entire chapter in the Bible. Like, think about this. God, God took an entire chapter of the Bible to highlight and talk about nothing but this couple's sex life. Like an entire chapter of their honeymoon to show us his standard for what a hot, passionate sex life should look like. And that was the most PG-13 message of the bunch. Great message. Week number three titled Great Sex. Last week, we talked about how to fight right. They get they have their first conflict as a married couple. We learned some principles about fighting. We're going to conflict when we're married, but there's some keys to learn when you conflict that will actually deepen and develop your relationship. Today, we're going to move on. This is kind of the, the honeymoon to the grave season of their marriage. This is this is their love deepens, their love begins to mature over time. In fact, chapter 7 is probably their 60s or 70s. This is now, they don't have silver hair. They've been married for 30, 40 years now. They've learned a few things, and they're going to show us what happens to a godly marriage over time. And it's critical for us to understand. Because here's what the world wants you to believe. Here, here's what the world is teaching us about marriage. What the world says is over time, you lose the fire. Over time, you, you lose the passion, the fire goes out, and then you spend the rest of your life remembering how it used to be. Well, can I tell you, that is not biblical at all, at all. Chapter 7 and 8 show us what a godly marriage should look like over time, and over time, it should deepen, it should grow. And so what we're going to talk about is how do we truly develop a relationship that lasts a lifetime and not something that we endure, but something we enjoy. See, the goal of marriage is not that you endure it to the finish line. The goal is that you actually enjoy it, that, that you get pleasure out of your marriage the way God designed for it to be. And so today we're going to talk about how do we deepen our love for one another? How, how do we as married people deepen our love? How do we as single people prepare ourselves one day for marriage to have a marriage that, that runs deep or a love that matures and strengthens over time? Because again, the statistics in America are appalling. Right now, one out of two to one out of three marriages in America end in divorce. The statistics right now say 41%, 41% of first marriages end in divorce 60% of second marriages end in divorce, and 75% of third marriages end in divorce. And the reason is, is because we all, you know, we, we bought into this lie that the right person, the perfect person, that if I marry the right person, everything's going to be perfect, everything's going to be right. So if we get into a fight, well, obviously we made a mistake and we've got to get out of this situation and go find the right person, only setting ourselves up for more and more failure. And, and I'll just tell you tonight that Amanda and I are probably the greatest proof that God can restore any marriage. Because I'm telling you right now, our marriage was more broken, more messed up, more ugly than any, any marriage you've ever, It's just an absolute miracle we're married today. We got married for all the wrong reasons. I talked last week about the honeymoon season that a lot of couples go to. We didn't even have a honeymoon season. We were so broke. I, I got married because I was trying to escape an addiction, living with a secret sin for years. And I, I thought, like many guys think, well, if I get married, it'll take care of that because I won't need that anymore because marriage will, will satisfy that area of my life. Come to find out, marriage didn't fix it at all. It actually made it a lot worse. And that's the big misconception. And so as a result, I caused many years of heartache, pain, tears, it, it, it was five years of just, just an ugly situation until we finally got to the point where we decided to get it right and do it God's way. And, and I decided to, to fully surrender. We made a decision that we want God to turn us into the standard, not a statistic. We don't want to end up another statistic. And why do Christians have virtually the same divorce rate as non-Christians? You look at the church in America and you look at people who don't go to church in America, the divorce rate is virtually the same. And the reason is because we have a lot of Christians who really aren't all that committed to doing it God's way. We have a lot of Christians where church is just a convenience thing for them. What can I get out of it when it's convenient, when it 
helps me, but they're not that serious by and large about their faith. Because when you study couples who are committed to doing things God's way, you'll find out the divorce rate goes way, way down. So wherever your marriage is at today, you may be looking at your situation thinking that you're in a broken marriage, a hopeless marriage. Uh, it, you may have just kind of fallen into a rut, lost the fire, lost the flame. Lost. Wherever you're at today, God can do a miracle. If, if you'll invite God into the equation, he'll absolutely revitalize that marriage. And if you have a good marriage today, God wants to make it better. Don't ever get satisfied with where you're currently at. The Bible says his mercies are new every day. Like, it can get better and better every day. So don't ever get satisfied. Don't ever get complacent. Don't ever, you know, allow yourself to say, this is good enough. It can absolutely get better, but it takes work. And I'm going to show you what could be today when we're willing to put the work into it. So again, the goal of the series is to make an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. That's what we want to try to accomplish. The rules of the series is let's not focus on your past. See, here's, here's the hard part. Many of you are going to hear God's standard tonight, and you're going to look at your past. You're going to look at mistakes, choices you've made, and you're going to allow Satan to beat you up and come in with some condemnation, some shame, to let you know that he's talking about everybody but you. This doesn't work for you. This doesn't apply for you. I want to make it absolutely clear. We are not condemning your past. That is not what we... Jesus was very, very clear. I did not come into this world to condemn the world or to judge the world, but to save the world. So we are not there. If you feel condemnation, that is from Satan, not from God. We are not here to condemn your past. We are here to fight for your future. As Paul said, we're going to forget those things which are behind us, and we're going to look forward, and we're going to press on to that which is ahead. And so today, we're going to let Solomon teach us some things about the later years of their marriage between him and the Shulamite. Honestly, I could have given you 20 points tonight. I could have filled your message notes. I could have probably done five, you know, stacks of message notes for you just tonight because every verse in chapter 7 has three or four points. Every verse. This is probably my favorite chapter out of the entire book. It's the most meaningful chapter. And honestly, uh, th this is really a selfish thing because I want my marriage to get better. I'm not satisfied with having a good marriage. I want a great marriage. And so I'm diving deep tonight. So just to let you in on a little bit of my secrets as a, as a teacher is I'm teaching me first. Like, I hope you get something out of tonight, but this is for me because I, I want my marriage to grow. I want my marriage to get better. And so I'm diving deep tonight in chapter 7. Great, great chapter. I know you are going to enjoy it. So let's jump, jump into verse number 1. Look what Solomon says first. How beautiful your sandaled feet. Your feet. Look at what Solomon is noticing about his wife here. Now, I, I think you would agree with me that feet are not the most attractive part of our body. I've never heard anyone say, I think feet are my best feature. Like, my feet are just like, I've got monkey feet. Like, i got an extra set of toes down there. I mean, they're just nasty looking. And no one ever says, you know, feet, you know, they're just utilitarian. They help us get from point A to point B, and that's about the only purpose they serve. And yet Solomon is noticing his wife's feet. Now, remember in chapter 4, the honeymoon night, when Solomon is describing his wife, he, he basically describes her from here to here. It's like the head to the chest. That, that's all he's seeing that night. So in other words, he's, he's talking about her, but he's actually thinking about him. If you catch my drift there, that's kind of what's going on. But what we see here is that when a relationship is done right, you begin to notice and appreciate what isn't obvious to everyone else. You see, as the relationship deepens, what is commonplace becomes exceptional. He goes on to say, oh, prince's daughter. Remember, this was the shepherdess. This was the girl that was sent out into the fields to take care of sheep. And now he's referring to her as royalty. She's a queen. What does that mean? He's saying, you, you, there is nobody in my life that outranks you. You are the highest ranking person. In my, you are royalty. There is nobody in my world more important than you. He goes on to say, 
Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hand. Now, when you study that in the Hebrew, it actually says the, 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 the hip, your, your, the joint of your hip is what it's actually saying. So I understand why the translators put graceful legs because it sounds better. But he's actually saying your hip joint is like the work of an artist's hand. He's talking about something nobody else will ever see because in public she would wear robes where, where nobody would see her hips. And privately, and let me remind you, this is years, years away from chapter 4. So her body has changed, if you know what I mean. Like time has set in. She doesn't have the figure that she had back in chapter 4. And he's still saying, after all these years, you're like the work of an artist's hands. He's just admiring his wife. He goes on to say, your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine, and your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Men, let me help you out. Don't ever refer to your wife's tummy as a mound. They do not want to think about their belly being a mound. So that's, that's you know, kind of offensive in our culture. That was beautiful in their culture. And here's why. In Israel, there were two harvest seasons. There was a spring harvest and a fall harvest. The spring harvest is when they would harvest grapes and would produce wine for the year. And then the fall harvest is when they would harvest wheat. And if the rains came, it would make the harvest bountiful and abundant. And they always viewed that as God's blessing. God would bring the rains that would give them an abundance in the harvest. So what he's saying by this verse is he's saying, you are God's greatest gift to me. The greatest thing that God has ever given me, the greatest blessing of my life is you. You bring me joy. You bring me abundance. You are a harvest in every season throughout the year, he says. And then he goes on and he says something that we read in chapter 4. He repeats it again. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. He's talking about her sexuality and he refers to it as twin fawns, baby deer. And when we talked about this in week three, we talked about how he's approaching her with a gentleness and a tenderness. And what's amazing, again, this is years later. This, this is years removed from the honeymoon. Years after the honeymoon, he still approaches intimacy with her with a gentleness and a tenderness. You know, I've heard women say that during the honeymoon season, my husband was so passionate and he was so gentle and he was so tender. And now years after our honeymoon, every time it comes to sex, he gets what he wants and then he rolls off. And women say they feel dirty and used and like a prostitute. Now, guys, you didn't hear every woman in the room say amen to that, but I guarantee you in their heart they said amen. And what Solomon is showing us here is after years of being married to this woman, he still approaches this very intimate part of their life with a gentleness and a tenderness that she desires and that she deserves. And so what we see here is a deeper appreciation. He notices her feet. He, he calls her royalty. He, he looks at the blessing of God of giving, her, giving him this woman. And let me say, deeper appreciation does not happen because time passes. It happens because you put in the work. Like, this doesn't happen automatically because you made it 10 years. This happens because you're doing the hard work of appreciating. The truth is, I'm more in love with my wife today after 12 years of marriage than I ever was at the beginning. And one of the reasons I'm more in love is because I noticed things about her I didn't notice back then. Like, my wife has the most beautiful freckles. Like, you've never seen them because they're always under the makeup. But I get to see them every morning before she puts the makeup on. I tell her all the time, baby, you look so beautiful without makeup. You don't even need makeup. Now, she doesn't listen to me. But she's got the most adorable little freckles. And I love her little freckles. One of the things I've noticed about my wife that I didn't know about her when we were dating is she has this amazing sensitivity in the middle of a, a tragic situation. You know, as pastors, we've had a number of families in our church go through personal tragedies. And I've seen my wife sew up in these situations, and she has a calm and a cool about her where she can help navigate people who are grieving and hurting through these difficult times. She actually pastors people better through those situations than even I do. And there's things that I've, I've learned about her 
that I didn't know when we were dating, but over time I've come to appreciate. And let me just say, if you don't appreciate, if, if your spouse doesn't find appreciation in your marriage, they're going to find it somewhere. Like they will find somebody to appreciate them if you understand what I'm saying. So a great, and I'm not justifying anything, I'm just saying we've got to make sure they're finding what they need in our marriage. So deeper appreciation. Let me give you some questions for each point to help you develop the point. Here's a great one that you can go home and talk over as a couple. What do you love? Like what does your heart burn for? What are, what are you passionate about in your life? Learn to love what they love. And you'll create a relationship, a friendship that lasts a lifetime. With my wife, one of the things that I know about her that, that, that she loves that is completely different than me because I don't is I'm a fast food guy. Like I, I don't like going to eat at places that have a waiter or waitress because I don't like to be confined by somebody else's timetable. Like when I want to leave, I want to leave. When I want to water, I want to water. I don't want to wait for somebody else. I want to take care of me so that I can move on with my life when I'm ready to move on with my life. My wife, on the other hand, is not like that at all. She likes the experience. She likes to sit down and enjoy the meal. And so we used to get in the same married fight over and over and over that all of us have got in that's married. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Where do you want to go for dinner? I don't care. Where do you want to go for dinner? I don't care. Where do you want to go for dinner? Well, let's go here. Well, I don't want to go there. And then boom, there's a fight. Well, the reason we fought so much is because I would always name places that did not have waiters or waitresses. And it never went well for me. And so now I've realized when we get into the whole, you know, where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? Where do you, I know that if I name a place that actually has a waiter or waitress, I, my, my odds go up that she'll accept and we'll have a good and enjoyable night. And every once in a while, I'll try to throw in, sneak in like a Chipotle or Panera because it's a step up for McDonald's. And occasionally it works. I think it's just because she loves me and trying to, trying to you know, find what I value in my heart. What do you love? What do you love? That, and again, let me say, this is not something you just sit down over coffee and try to figure out. This is also a question that you ask with your eyes. You ask with your heart. Study your spouse. Find out what their heart burns for. Val love what they love. Appreciate what they appreciate. Develop this deeper appreciation. The next thing we see in this couple, he says, your neck is like an ivory tower. Now, she wasn't a giraffe. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying here is you have a worth to me that can never be replaced. You have a value that is impossible to calculate. Think about this. Ivory is very expensive. And in order to harvest ivory, something has to die. Can you imagine the quantity of ivory it would take to build a tower? It would be impossible. There is no way you could ever harvest enough ivory to build a tower out of it. What he's saying to his wife is you could never be replaced. You are so valuable to me. I, I, I could never, you're a tourist attraction. You're a monument. There's something about your worth that, that there's no way this could ever be replaced. Am I, it's, it's beautiful language. He says, your eyes are the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Beth Rabim. Now, Heshbon was a very busy city. It was a commercial city. It was a financial district. There was buying and selling. There was a lot of hustle. It was a stressful city to go to just because of all the commotion, all the activity. And the pools of Heshbon were a couple miles outside of the city gate. There was these natural springs, and they traded this spa, this retreat. It was where you went when you wanted to get away from the hustle of the city. You wanted to go, and you wanted to find a place to get rejuvenated, to relax, to retreat. It was a spa. What Solomon is saying here is when I've had a, a rough day at work, when, when I've been at work all day and it's been difficult and it's been tough and I've been challenged and I've had to go through battles, I know when I come home to you, it's like a spa. Solomon is saying, I hurry home from work. Like, I can't wait to get home from work because coming home to you... It, it's a place where I can be rejuvenated. You're like a spa. I can relax in your presence. I feel refreshed being around you. Women, you have to ask the question, does your husband hurry home from work? Have you created an environment where he wants to hurry home from work? And men, for those of you that have wives that work out of the home, have you created an environment she wants to come home to? It takes effort to create an atmosphere where they can retreat and find the relaxation, the, the, the spa-like experience that Solomon is describing here in their marriage. 
He says, your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, looking toward Damascus. He's not saying she has a big nose. The Tower of Lebanon was Israel's symbol of national defense. It stood towards Assyria. What he's saying here is, I'm secure with you. I'm safe with you. In other words, I don't ever have to worry about being in public with you and you doing anything to purposely humiliate or embarrass me. I don't ever have to worry about you criticizing me or being negative about me to your friends. I feel safe with you. So what we see here is they're developing a deeper level of trust. They, they trust. They feel safe with each other. See, relationships that last a lifetime take years of hard work. You've got to dig deep in order to get to a place where you know one another beyond simply what's in it for me. And the beauty of marriage is God has actually rigged marriage where you can't get it right without his help. Meaning that there are things my wife needs from me that I don't have, that I can't give her without God. It makes me depend on God. It makes me deepen my relationship, my friendship with God, because there are things she needs that I don't have. And I've got to go to God to get them so that I can give them to her if we're going to have a healthy marriage. God rigged it where you need God to pull this off. It, it, it works only with him. So the question for this one is, what makes you feel safe? What makes you feel safe in this relationship? What can I do to give you a level of security about our marriage that that's, it's intact? You know, for me, one of the things that I know makes my wife feel safe because of my past is she needs to know where I'm at at all times. I don't ever want her to be surprised about where I'm at. So I work very hard every day to let her know kind of here's where I'm going to be throughout the day. I've got this meeting and I'll be here and here's how long I'm going to stay. I just know for her, she, need, she, she should never be surprised about where I'm at. She should just know this is, this is where I'm at. This is who I'm with. That's something that makes her feel safe in our relationship. One of the things that makes me feel safe is I know she's never going to badmouth me to, my, to her friends. Like I never have to worry about her being negative or critical about me. To, and if she was, I think it would hurt and affect my It would be hard for me to get up here on the weekend and speak to people if I knew that my wife had been badmouthing me to her friends. And so it's, it, it's just an area where I feel safe. Solomon is showing us the type of guy here that would never hurt his wife. It's the type of guy that he doesn't flirt with other women. He's not touchy with other women. He's not the type of guy that ever does anything that makes his wife jealous. This is a relationship where they're secure. There's a, there's a trust that they're developing here. What makes you feel safe? The next point, verse 5. He says, your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is the most beautiful part of Israel. It's this beautiful, lush, green mountain range overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. What he's saying here, and notice he's not talking about her physical appearance. He's talking about her head. And in the Hebrew, it's, it's, it means what's inside of her. He's talking about her inner beauty here. Like she has a character. She has a disposition. She has a spirit. And, and what he's saying is, you are my crown. And the point is, the crown of any husband is not his job, it's not his children, it's not his accomplishments. The crown of any husband is a good wife. That, that's the crowning achievement of any husband, the greatest success of any man. The greatest resume in my life is the fact that I got Amanda to marry me. Like, that is my crowning achievement. And what's, what's amazing about this, and women, you need to understand this about men. I've never been around a group of Christian men, never. Not one time have I ever been around Christian men who bragged about their wife's physical appearance. Guys don't do that. See, I, I know that as a woman, you put a lot of pressure on yourself for the way you look physically. And not against that, I'm just saying, I think sometimes we took, I think some of it's coming from our culture because I've never... In a marriage, a guy's greatest need is not the physical beauty of his wife. A guy's greatest need is the responsiveness of his wife. And so 
When Christian men get together, they don't brag about the physical beauty of their spouse. What they talk about is their character, their disposition, their, their spirit. They, they, they've got this loving, serving, you know, humble spirit. That's what I hear men talk about. And that's what Solomon is talking about. He's talking about her inner beauty. Her inner beauty is a crown. He says, your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. Now, Solomon's the king. Nothing is over him. Like, th this is a dictatorship. Like, he is in charge. Nothing is over Solomon except for one thing. He says, I'm held captive to my wife. I'm a slave to my wife. I'm submitted to her. And, and it's so beautiful because, again, it's not her physical beauty. It's who she is. It's how she treats him. It's her disposition. It's her, it's her character. You know, one of the things I love about my wife is, is she, she's beautiful. Like, like to me, she's just, she's drop dead gorgeous. But beyond the physical, she's actually more beautiful on the inside. Like she has qualities to her that, that are incredible to me. Like her discernment, she's got the best, like she can discern situations. She has a discernment about people. Her discernment on scripture is amazing. Like some of the best messages I've ever taught here, I actually stole from her. She gets these thoughts when she reads the Bible and she sees in. She just has this wisdom with the Bible and a discernment with scripture where it just kind of unlocks things. And it's something that I've just, I've really grown to appreciate about her. And what we see here from this couple is they're moving to a deeper level of devotion. They are devoted to each other. Beyond the physical, they're committed to each other. And the question to help you develop this in your relationship is what do you value? What's important to you? I want to value, just, just as I want to love what you love, I want to value what you value. And again, we listen with our eyes, we listen with our ears, our heart to find it. You know, in our marriage, and that's the only one I know because it's the only one I have, um, one of the things that I've learned about my wife is she values the holidays. I'm not a holiday guy. I spent most of my life single and kind of on my own. I left, you know, home at a very young age and was just on my own for years. And so I'm just not a holiday guy. I go through the holidays. I don't really celebrate much for, for years. And then I got married, and my wife is Mrs. Christmas. Like, she loves the holidays, like the decorating and the cookies and the, the, just the whole nostalgia. Like, I like the Jesus part of Christmas, but that's about it for me. Like, I can do without everything else. But she loves it all, and she wants to create this experience in our home for our family and for our son. And so what I've learned to do, because I want a great marriage, is I've learned to value what she values. So I've, I've gotten into the Christmas spirit. Now, I actually have Christmas pajamas, and, and we do the whole tradition on Christmas Eve. I mean, it's just it's something that I, I've learned to value what she values, because I want our marriage to get better and better over time. Let me get into the final point here, and this is, you're going to think we're going back to the honeymoon night, chapter 4, because I, I thought chapter 4 was PG-13. You haven't seen anything yet. Now, remember, they've got silver hair now. This is later on. They've been married for like 20, 30, 40 years. They're, they're, they're in their twilight, and they're just as passionate for each other as ever, and it's here because God says, this is the standard for marriage. This is what I expect out of godly Christian couples, and, and you're going to see something, and it's awesome. He says, how beautiful you are and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. Now, the conversation is changing now to their intimate relationship. He's basically talking about her sexually now. And he's saying it's, it's still delightful after all of these years. It, it's gotten better after all of these years. He says, your stature is like that of the palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I don't need to explain that. That means exactly what you think it means. If you need further explanation, I can't help you. You can ask somebody afterwards. He goes on to say, I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. Again, that means exactly what you think it means. Like this, this is getting PG-13 quick, isn't it? Now, the word palm tree is used specifically there. There's two ways you can climb a palm tree. You know, I studied this the last few weeks. In Broward County, Florida, there's actually a law against palm tree abuse, that if you climb a palm tree the wrong way, you can be fined by the city for, for palm tree abuse. And 
that way of climbing a palm tree is, is very similar to what we see with the guys that work on telephone poles or utility poles. They have these boots with spikes in it, and the spikes enable them to climb the palm tree quickly. It's a way where they can go fast, they can go quick, they can get the fruit they want, and they can, they, they, they can get down quickly, get off the tree quickly. And it's a way of climbing the palm tree that has absolutely no regard for the tree itself because it damages the tree, it hurts the tree. It's just fast, easy, cheap, quick way to the fruit, and you're done. I hope you're catching the analogy, man. I hope I don't need to explain that one to you. There's another way to climb a palm tree. The other way to climb a palm tree is you have a wooden platform attached to your feet, and you have a leather strap, and you take the leather strap, and you reach up around the tree, and you embrace the tree, and you pull the tree close, and then you pull your feet up and the wooden platform up, and then it sets a new barrier, and then you can stand on the platform, stand again, raise the leather strap, embrace the tree, pull yourself up. It's a much slower way to the top of the tree. It takes a lot longer to get to the fruit, but it's a way of climbing the palm tree that doesn't damage or hurt the tree. So there's two ways to climb a palm tree, and so that's, again, I hope you catch the analogy there. You can work that one out on your own. He goes on to say, may your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vines, the fragrance of your breath like apples in your mouth like the best wine. He's basically saying that our intimacy, our, our, our relationship is the most delightful. It's the most enjoyable. It's the most pleasurable. After all of these years, it's as good as it's ever been. It's getting better. And then she finishes his sentence. And it's one of those, you know, when couples have been together a long time, they, they, it's not one of those interrupting rude ways, but it's that cute complimentary way. He says, your mouth is like the best wine. And then she says, and may that wine, may my life, may my my sexuality goes straight to my beloved, flowing gently over his lips and teeth. I mean, th this, is, this is hot. I mean, this is spicy. I mean, they're, they're going at it. I mean, they're, they're having a good time here, aren't they? And this brings me back to a point I said a couple weeks ago, and that's you cannot have a godly marriage without a passionate sex life. I mean, this chapter is the standard for what God wants our marriages to look like. But the, the, the important truth here is you cannot sustain a passionate sex life without a godly marriage because it takes God to fight against your selfishness. It takes God to, to, to not just go after what, not, not climb the tree quickly to get what you want, to get your needs met, and then to move on. It takes God to fight your selfishness and really learn to lay your life down for one another. And so what we see in this couple now is a deeper intimacy. We see their intimacy growing over time. And the question for this is, what brings you pleasure? Have you studied your spouse? Have you, have you sought to find out what brings you pleasure? She goes on to say in verse 10, I belong to my beloved. I want him to have all of me. Like all that I am belongs to him and his desire is for me. Now, this desire is a Hebrew word that's only mentioned three times in the Old Testament, and it means consuming desire. It's the same word that God uses when he talks to Cain in Genesis, and he says, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is to consume you. She's saying, my husband has a desire to consume me. And again, we're talking about their, their intimate relationship. And what this tells us is, most women, not all women, but most women, if we're honest, they see their husband's sex drive as a nuisance. They do. I mean, I hear it a lot as a pastor. And I love this woman because she says, nope, it's not a problem. In fact, I am the best wine, and I have no problem that he wants the best wine, and I'm the best wine. And remember again what she said in verse 9, and may that wine go straight to my beloved. Like, like it's not a problem for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to minister to him. Like, he has this desire that I don't have. He has this, this, this need that, that I don't have, and it's okay, she says. It's okay that he's different than me. I mean, we know men have 
a physical need that they want fulfilled in the marriage. Women have more of an emotional need that they want. And it takes us working hard to fulfill those needs for each other. And this woman says, he's got a need, and I have no problem ministering to him what his need is. So let me, let me just be fair for a moment. I, I, I'm going I'm to challenge the women, and then before you get mad at me, I'm going to challenge the men. So just hold on for one second. I, I think all of us can be a little challenged in this area if we think about it. Women, let me, let me just say it like this. Yes, guys, they want more than women do. Let's just be honest about it. You can either look at that as a nuisance, or you can just acknowledge the fact that, you know what, my husband has a need that I don't have. And so I'll just, I'll minister to the need that he has. And so women, if you're looking for a ministry to be a part of, if you're married, great ministry. Now, before you get mad at me and leave and we lose all the women in our church, let me, let me talk to the men for a moment. Men, I, I, know, I know the issue for you because I hear it constantly and, and it's frequency. Like the frequency is just not what you desire. You desire a greater frequency than what's currently taking place in your marriage. So let me give you some advice. Maybe if you learned how to climb the palm tree the right way, the frequency would go up. You can work that one out on your own. This is the biblical standard here. This is God's best for our marriages. Moving on, verse 10, she says, Come, my beloved, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. They're going on a date. And I, I love the fact that after all these years of marriage, they're still dating. They're still dating. That's why I said a few weeks ago, I don't believe we should date before we get married. I think we should date after we get married. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. It's springtime. They began to court in spring. Now, after all of these years of marriage, they're still in love. They're still dating. And notice in this story something. It never talks about their children or their career. This book is the standard on marriage, and it never mentions their kids or their career. Why? You can't build your marriage on your kids or your career. Kids and career are the quickest killer of a marriage. She says, there, I will give him my love. And now she says something that in their culture, everybody would have chuckled and laughed because it's a sexual innuendo. It's, it's kind of a, you know, sexual joke here. She says, the mandrakes send out their fragrance. Now, we don't really get that. They would have been like, I can't believe he said that. I mean, you know, that, that would have just been, or she said that. They, they would have been shocked. Because the mandrake was a fruit with a root on it that they would eat. And the root of the fruit, the reason it got the name mandrake is because the root resembles the anatomy of a man. And so what she's saying there is, my, don't the mandrake smell good? And that means what you think it means. I can't believe that's in the Bible. And then she goes on to say, and at our doors, every delicacy. And th this, this is what I wanted to point out. She says, both new and old, both new and old that I have stored up for you my beloved. She's giving her husband new and old fruit. In other words, she's not allowing her relationship to get into a rut. There are things that her and her husband have done for years that they enjoy doing together. It could be a certain way of holding hands when they're walking down the street. But she says, I'm not just going to rely on the old. I'm going to keep the relationship excited. I'm going to find new ways to please and to serve. In other words, she's not becoming an old hag. And let's be honest, in marriage, as men get older, men get lazy. Don't we, men? We, we stop putting out the effort. We stop putting in the energy. We stop, you know, learning how to climb the palm tree the right way. But women, when they get older in marriage, they get crabby. And that's by and large true. And she says, I'm not going to let it happen. She says, I'm going to become a better lover over time. I'm going to keep our, our marriage alive and exciting. And you see both of them committed to this. And this is God's heart and passion. It's his standard. It's his standard for us as Christians. And I think everyone in here would look at this story and say, you know what, that's exactly the type of marriage I'd love to have. 
It takes two people to put in some hard work. Now, let me just say that I recognize the fact that if you're in a situation where you have one spouse who is willing and the other spouse who is not willing or, or give enough or doesn't care, it's harder and it'll take a little bit longer. Doesn't mean it's impossible to restore that marriage. But I will admit that it, it, it will be a little bit more complicated. But if you've got two spouses here tonight and you're in a situation where you've allowed your marriage to kind of fall into a rut, where it's gotten a little dry, the, the fire has waned, it's time to throw a log on the fire. It's time to take these notes home and sit down and talk it through and say, okay, what do, I, we got to figure this out. Like, I want my appreciation to deepen. I want my trust to deepen. I want my devotion to deepen. I want our intimacy to deepen. How do we figure this out? And I'm telling you, it, 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 it can happen. God can bring you down this process of restoring and revitalizing and rekindling. And it doesn't matter how broken or how ugly it is, God, God can put it back together. He's the only one that can. And for those of you that have a good marriage, I want to challenge you to make it better. His mercies are, there's so much more available. Don't, don't settle with where you're at. No matter how good it is, don't settle with where you're at. Because there's so much more available for you. But above all, let me make it clear, this is not psychology. You cannot do this stuff without God. You'll never hit the potential. You'll never maximize it. You can, you can only get so far without Him. And it's going to fall short. And it's going to leave you wanting. It takes God to pull this off. So would you close your eyes with me for just a moment? If you're here tonight, and Jesus is not the Lord of your life. Lord means boss, ruler, the one in charge, first, foremost, center. That's what the word Lord means. And you're the only one that could say, you know what? When I look at my life, it's, it's, it's obvious that Jesus is the Lord. Doesn't mean you're perfect, doesn't mean you always get it right, but you wake up daily with a passion to put Jesus first. Sometimes you fall short, but you got a passion to put him first. You're the only one that knows if that reflects you. If that does not reflect your life, then I'm going to ask you tonight to say a prayer with me and invite Jesus to be the Lord of your life. And this could be the very first time you've ever said this prayer. It could be your first time in a Christian church. I don't need to convince you because I know the Holy Spirit right now is working on your heart. And you, and you know that what I'm saying is true. And you don't know how you know it. You just have this knowing that's God's Spirit working on your heart. And then there's some of you that are here tonight. You need to renew your commitment to Him. Because your, your commitment to God has grown cold. And it's time to renew that commitment to him. And so if that's you, I want to pray with you before we leave tonight. So with every eye closed, out of respect, and just so that I know who I'm praying with, I'm not going to ask you to stand up. You don't have to walk anywhere. You don't even have to pray this out loud. This is just a moment between you and God. But if you'd like to join me in this prayer of inviting Jesus to be the Lord of your life with no one looking around, would you very quickly just raise your hand and then put it right back down so that I know who I'm praying with tonight. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Is there anybody else? Appreciate that, thank you. Here's the prayer. In your heart, say, Jesus, tonight I surrender my life to you. I invite you to be my Lord, ruler, boss, the one that's in charge. Forgive me for the times I've missed it. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for forgiving my past. And thank you for restoring my future. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed with me tonight, I'd, I personally would, would like to know about it so that I can be praying for you this week. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is something you can do on your own. But on the connection card you received, there's two boxes. One says, I'm committing my life to Christ. One says, I'm renewing my commitment to Christ. When you prayed with me, it reflects one of those. Would you let me know which one so that I can be praying for you this week? And then the only other thing we'll do 
is we're just going to send you an email this week, and the email gives you some next steps. You began a spiritual journey tonight, and, and, and you need to kind of know your marching orders. You need to know, okay, what's my next step? I, I gave my life to Jesus tonight. I invited him to be the Lord. What's my next step? And we'll send you an email that just makes it clear, give you some obvious next steps in the journey that you're on. Would you stand with me before we leave tonight? I want to take a moment. I want to pray over all of the marriages of our church and all of the future marriages of our church. There are people tonight that are married. There are people tonight who are going to be married. And I, just, I, I want our church to have a special grace for this. I want our church to be the standard and not the statistic. I want to fight for the marriages of our church. I, I want our church to represent marriages of, of couples that are passionate, in love. People look at us and, and they're like, how in the world do you build a marriage like that? Like you guys are so in love after all of these years. Like you enjoy being around. You're, you're just every aspect. It's just pleasing is the fragrance of the marriages of that church. And I believe it's possible with, with people who are willing. People who say, you know what? We'll submit to doing it Jesus' way. And I'm telling you, you look at his standard for marriage, it's incredible. I don't think you can find a better standard for what a marriage should look like than what we just saw in chapter 7. It's beautiful. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray over the marriages of our church. God, give us a grace for this. God, let the marriages of our church be a pleasing fragrance to this community. Let it spread. Let people see in us a way to love one another, a way to do marriage that is more delightful than wine, God. For the marriages that are hanging on by threads right now, for those that, that have given up, for those that have just kind of shut down and they just decided they're just going to endure it till it's over, or those that are even looking for a way out, I pray right now that you would restore hope to them. Restore their hope. Let him know with you all things are possible. It can turn around. It does not have to stay that way. For those that are single and divorced, God, I come against any shame or condemnation they may be feeling right now. Lord, there is no condemnation, but we're fighting for their future. So let them accept this for, your, for their future. God, bless us as a church. Bless the marriages of our church, God. The marriages are the bedrock of a church. You are the bedrock of the marriage. The marriage is the bedrock of the church. The church is the bedrock of a community. God, we want to get this right. Help us. In Jesus' name.